The thyroid is a soft, small 12 to 20 gram gland located just below the cricoid cartilage. Most medical students know it as the organ that they pretend to palpate during physical exam. Despite its small size, it has a profound physiologic effect. Thyroid hormones are crucial in fetal development. They act on nearly every cell in the body, yet have one of the lowest concentrations of all substances in serum and is tightly regulated. Its pathologies have protein manifestations, sometimes with grave consequences. I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. On today's curbside consult, we're taking a closer look at the highs and lows of managing thyroid disorders. Here with me today is a special guest, Dr. O.P. Hemovic. He is an endocrinologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, the fellowship director for its endocrinology program, and the education editor for the NEJM group, one of my mentors for this year while I've been here as an editorial fellow, and one of my earliest teachers who taught me about the thyroid. Welcome, OP. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Long-time listener, first-time participant, I guess. <laughs> you might be one of our five listeners, uh, including my parents. <laughs> so, OP, let's start by reviewing the thyroid hormone and its physiology a little bit for our audience. I think the thyroid gland is a very fascinating organ, as we mentioned earlier. It's small, yet pretty powerful, and I think oftentimes we, we have good tests for measuring its function, and yet very often we check it and we're not really sure what to do with the results and necessarily how to interpret fully accurately. So let's start talking about the HPT axis and the function of the hormones to get the lay of the land. Sure. So the thyroid is a part of this hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, like you said, and it's sort of the typical hypothalamic pituitary endocrine organ axis. So the thyroid makes its thyroid hormone under the influence of uh, a pituitary hormone, and in this case, that's called TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone. The most important thyroid hormone is T4 and T3. So those two hormones act in a negative feedback manner on the hypothalamus and on the pituitary to reduce the secretion of TSH as the levels of the thyroid hormone goes up. Mm -hmm. And what about some of these other names that get thrown out a little bit, like reverse T3? Yeah, so the actual active hormones are primarily actually T3, and that's, it gets its name because it has three iodine atoms on it. T4 is kind of a pro-hormone that's converted to T3 in the, in the periphery, in the tissues, although there is some T3 that's being directly secreted by the thyroid also. But it turns out that T4 can also be converted into reverse T3, and reverse T3 is totally inactive. So if T4 is being converted to reverse T3, it's actually sort of being inactivated. It's not available to act on the thyroid hormone receptors. It's basically one of the metabolic pathways of thyroid hormone. The enzymes that are responsible for all of this are called the diiodinase enzymes. And diiodinase basically meaning that it's removing one iodine. So it's taking the T4, which has four iodine atoms, to T3, which has three iodine atoms. Or a different type of diiodinase might convert the T4 to reverse T3, which also has three iodine atoms. It's just that they're located on different parts of the molecule. And as a result, the molecule is different enough that it doesn't actually have any effects. And this might be important in the setting of certain disease states where more of the T4 is being converted into reverse T3 than during sort of normal healthy physiology. Mm -hmm. 
Great. And then what about these numbers that we check that splits them up into free or bound T3, T4? I feel like sometimes that gets very complicated. When do you prefer a free? When do you get a total? So in general, thyroid hormone, like many other hormones, is primarily bound to all these proteins in the plasma. Of course, one important protein is albumin, so a lot of the thyroid hormone is bound to albumin. Another important one for thyroid hormone specifically is thyroid binding globulin. And these are just proteins. They're kind of carrier proteins. And the reason to have them, those proteins, is that it allows your body to have quite a lot of thyroid hormone in the blood, sort of a big pool of thyroid hormone to get active thyroid hormone from. But the hormone that's bound to the protein cannot go to the receptors, to the tissues, to have any physiologic effect. So it's sort of more of a storage form, if you like, of the thyroid hormone. What really is active is the free fraction. So that's the thyroid hormone that's just floating around in the blood, ready to go into the tissues, act on the receptors, and cause the physiologic effects of thyroid hormone. It turns out that for thyroid hormone, especially for T4, we have decent assays to actually measure the free T4. So in most cases, if we are curious about the concentration of thyroid hormone, we will measure the free T4. There are some cases that where we start to get worried about the accuracy of the free T4 assay. And that's especially if you have extremes of acid-base balance in the body, or if you have very extreme changes in protein binding. And so some settings where you might see this is in the very, very sick patient who is in the ICU with a respiratory acidosis from their respiratory failure or something like that. Also in the pregnant patient, they have a lot higher levels of the thyroid binding globulins and other proteins that bind the thyroid hormone. So in those settings, we often will measure the total T4. And to try to get a sense of, well, you know, how much of that total T4 is actually free, how much of it is actually available to exert physiologic effects, we can try to measure some of the binding proteins. And it turns out that rather than just measure a thyroid binding globulin, we often get a measurement called the T3 resin uptake. But with a T3 resin uptake, you can basically put the value of the T3 resin uptake and the T4, the total T4 value into a calculator, and it will tell you whether the sort of calculated free T4 value is acceptable. And that's something that I will often do in those patients that I suspect that the free T4 assay might not be quite accurate, so in pregnancy or in the very sick inpatient Oftentimes, I'll actually get both the free T4 and the total T4 and the T3 resin uptake in that setting and sort of try to get an overall picture of what I think might be going on. Great. So I'm glad to hear that this T3 resin uptake assay, which I feel like was just created to befuddle med students on board exams, actually has clinical uses. And so it sounds like in really sick patients or in settings where some of the traditional tests are not as reliable, you want to get a few extra ones to get a better sense. Exactly. And when it comes to T3, you know, we can measure total T3 fairly accurately. It gets really tricky to measure free T3 levels. And it, it has to do with the fact that the free T3 levels are actually so minute that it's difficult to develop assays that are very accurate at those low levels. So I, I actually never measure a free T3. I only will measure a total T3. And if I really think there's something going on with protein binding, I'll get the T3 resin uptake in that setting. Yeah, I think thyroid hormones is one of the few times when I see things measured in any quantity of units less than micromolars or micrograms. I think we're now down into the nano ranges. So, yeah. But also, I think, highlights a point we alluded to earlier, which is that, again, such an important hormone, 
all these mechanisms of being tightly regulated. There's the ordinary HPT access feedback system, but then we store, we keep a lot of it bound and inactive in the blood so that we can pull in reservoirs whenever it's needed. And also, despite its abundance, only a certain amount of it is in the blood able to be biologically active. So if T3 is the important hormone, or T4, the hormone that's actually doing the action, lots of other hormones we just directly measure. But for us, we're always taught that if you're going to probe the HPT axis, check a TSH. What's so special about the TSH in all of this? Yeah, so you're right. We just talked about how we can actually measure T4 and T3. So why would we go and measure TSH? And the reason is that, firstly, if you look at the normal range of, say, free T4, it's kind of a broad normal range. But depending on the lab you look at, it might be between 0.9 and 1.7, which, when you think of it as like a factor of two, that's a pretty broad normal range. But it turns out in a given individual, they tend to be happiest with free T4 within a very narrow range. It's just that the normal ranges are based on big populations. So you might be happy with a free T4 of 1.3, but maybe my body prefers a free T4 of 0.9. And just by measuring the free T4 level, I wouldn't necessarily know whether that's abnormal. But the TSH is sort of your body's own response to a given free T4 level. And it turns out that the pituitary is really responsive to any changes in free T4 levels. So the relationship between TSH and free T4 is a logarithmic relationship. So meaning that a tiny little change in the free T4 level will lead to a pretty big change in the TSH level. Mm. So if you have a normal TSH, you can be pretty darn confident that your body is happy with its current thyroid hormone status. The flip side of that is that you do end up picking up very mild abnormalities of the thyroid axis because the TSH is just so very, very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Great. So it's a sensitive test that has a bigger range to be probed and therefore makes it a bit more reliable. And it kind of gets, I guess, on the population level, it's probably more reliable measure of the set point for the individual. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. All right. So we just covered some of these basic lab tests. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, we have these great lab tests and we're susceptible to want to order it very frequently. And you had mentioned the setting earlier that you know there are sick patients in, in whom the testing of various thyroid hormones, TSH, may not be quite reliable. So let's talk about this idea of a sick euthyroid syndrome, this entity where patients come in, we maybe suspecting a thyroid disorder, a TFT gets checked, and then we look at the test, they're just slightly outside the normal range, and the attending walks in and says, oh, that's just the sick euthyroid syndrome, don't worry about it. What is it, how do we recognize it, and do we need to do something about it? Yeah, so this is very much what we see on the inpatient consult service in endocrinology. There are a bunch of adaptive changes to the endocrine system that happens in the setting of acute illness. By adaptive, I mean that they sort of make sense. So sort of on the non-thyroid side of things, you will shut down your menstrual cycles if you're a woman, so your reproductive axis is shut down. You will rev up your cortisol level to help you deal with the stress of the illness. Coming back to the thyroid, the thyroid helps regulate metabolism. So if you're very sick, you are maybe not able to take in a sufficient number of calories it sort of makes sense for your metabolism to turn down. So your hypothalamus from the inputs from the brain and from the body 
is realizing this organism is really sick right now. I should just slow things down, not expend a lot of energy. Let me just turn out my stimulation of the thyroid hormone. So the hypothalamus will make less TRH, which is thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which in turn will lead to the pituitary to make less TSH, which then will have the consequence of reducing the T4 and T3 output for the thyroid gland. In addition, there are changes also at the level of these diiodinase enzymes. So you will get more inactivation of T4 into this reverse T3 that we talked about, as opposed to activation of T4 into T3. So all of this leads to essentially every number going down. That's a classic non-thyroidal illness syndrome pattern. So your TSH is down, your free T4 is down, your T3 is down. And it makes sense. You slow down your metabolism. What can happen as your axis recovers, as you get better, basically? You've gotten your antibiotics for your sepsis. You've gotten your IV fluids for your hypotension. You are on demand. Now the system is going to wake up again. And sometimes the TSH will overshoot a little bit. And you might see a little bit of a high TSH, typically not more than 10 or maybe 20. Even as high as 20 would be unusual. So in the recovery phase of the non-thyroidal illness syndrome, you might see a high TSH. But in the sort of acute phase, everything is low. So in that setting, the patient comes in and perhaps they, they have sepsis, they have pneumonia, and they also have atrial fibrillation. So you sent off a TSH because you were concerned about maybe thyrotoxicosis causing the atrial fibrillation. And the TSH comes back on the low side. Anytime you get a, an abnormal TSH, your, your next step should be to send a free T4. Or maybe if they're very sick, you'll send a total T4 and a T3 resin uptake. So you send that, and that will come back actually on the low side. So that is not consistent with thyrotoxicosis. So if the patient had a true thyrotoxicosis and that's what caused their atrial fibrillation, they would actually have a high level of the 3T4. So another way to think of the non-thyroidal illness syndrome is to think of it as a transient or reversible central hypothyroidism. That's the way I think of it. Is it transient, it's central, so it's a suppression of TSH secretion and it's hypothyroidism because your T4 is actually low. Great. And it does make a lot of sense, as you mentioned briefly earlier, from an evolutionary standpoint, that if your body is sensing insult, that it should probably conserve itself to try to survive the acute illness without expending all of its energy stores. And if nothing else, it helps you remember what the changes are, whether it's actually the real reason or not, I don't know, but it helps remember what the changes are. Absolutely. Great. So... Let's just talk briefly to round up our workup of thyroid diseases, and then we'll get into the meat of the discussion about covering some topics in hypo and then briefly hyperthyroidism. Other than the traditional TFT tests, we measure the hormones, we measure TSH. What other tests do you use in the diagnostic workup process? In some algorithms, somewhere I've seen the measurement of certain types of antibodies to make a delineation or diagnosis an uptake scan, and the ultrasound. Right. So I think the, there is the evaluation of abnormal thyroid structure. So that's like if you feel a goiter or you feel a nodule or the patient is complaining about neck swelling, something like that. And if there's abnormal thyroid structure, the next best step there is to get a thyroid ultrasound. That gives you very good images of the thyroid and can delineate any nodules and can also sort of set the stage for potentially biopsies and so on. But today we're talking mostly about abnormalities in thyroid function. Mm-hmm. So you can have either an underfunctioning thyroid or an overfunctioning thyroid. So if you have an underfunctioning thyroid or hypothyroidism, the main additional test that you can do is a TPO antibody. The TPO antibody basically is a marker of autoimmune thyroid disease. 
So if you have the finding of both hypothyroidism and the presence of anti-TPO antibodies, that's diagnostic of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. I will say, honestly, does it really change what I do? Probably not. I'm still going to treat the patient the same. Sometimes it can be helpful if the patient has borderline thyroid labs and we're sort of humming and hawing about whether to start them on thyroid hormone. If I see positive antibodies, I know that the likelihood of progression of their thyroid disease is about twice as high as if they have negative uh, uh, anti-TPO antibodies. You can also check antithyroglobulin antibodies, for the, which will give you sort of the same information, but it has a little bit lower sensitivity, so I usually stick with anti-TPO antibodies. On the other hand, in a patient with hyperthyroidism or an overactive thyroid, the next best test is usually to send a TSH receptor antibody. There are a few different blood tests that fall under the category of TSH receptor antibodies, but the one that I usually use is called the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin. Your institution might have uh, different ones, including the TSH-binding inhibitory immunoglobulin test or other lab tests that also getting at the issue of whether there's TSH receptor antibodies present. The alternative to sending the TSI antibody is to obtain a radioactive iodine uptake scan. And that certainly was the first step in the past. But with the new TSI assays being pretty good, I usually do that first. And if I'm still not quite sure about what the diagnosis is, I might get radioactive iodine uptake. And that will help me figure out if it's Graves' disease, a multinodular goiter, or a thyroid nodule. And you'll notice that I didn't mention thyroid ultrasound in the workup of abnormal thyroid function, because it typically is not part of the workup. There are certain very specific scenarios where we might get a thyroid ultrasound, but in your routine patient who's coming in with a TSH of 20 and you suspect Hashimoto's thyroiditis and hypothyroidism, you don't need a thyroid ultrasound if their physical exam, their thyroid exam is normal. All right. So a lot of it depends on history. And then, so again, for measuring just thyroid function, sounds like you match some history, figure out are they low, are they high? And then maybe some antibodies can help you elucidate the underlying disease process and think about a uptake scan if you are worrying, still unsure about specific diagnosis, whether it's a diffuse process or, or scattered localized process. Like a nodule, yep, yep. Great. So let's talk about hypothyroidism. It feels like every 70-year-old woman or older who gets admitted, I end up ordering them for levothyroxine seems like an epidemic out there of hypothyroidism. Well, is that true? Is there a scourge of hypothyroidism out there? So hypothyroidism is pretty common, actually. And we don't really understand why the thyroid is so prone to autoimmune destruction, but it really is. And we see that just, as you said, in run-of-the-mill, any patient that comes in has a high likelihood of having thyroid disease. But also with the new immunotherapies that we use in cancer treatment, the thyroid is a really common organ to be affected by immune-related adverse events. So there's something about the thyroid that seems to be sort of immunogenic or making it prone. That's so interesting. Yeah. So there have been cross-sectional studies that have shown that maybe about 11% of patients have the TPO antibody, and maybe about 4 or 5% of patients have subclinical hypothyroidism, and 1% to 2% will have actual overt hypothyroidism. But having said that, that's sort of taking a population at large. It gets more common with age, just like any other organ with the thyroid will also have reduced function with aging, and therefore it becomes more and more common with age. I also think that the symptoms of hypothyroidism are common, things like fatigue and weight gain and so on. So it is very common for people to have a TSH checked 
the treatment for hypothyroidism, levothyroxine, is a very safe treatment. And as a result, we often will start it sort of at the drop of a hat. You know, it doesn't take a lot of convincing. We're not going to start, you know, chemotherapy in someone mm -hmm. unless we have like a very firm diagnosis of a malignancy. But for hypothyroidism, sometimes I think it is started on sort of softer indications. Okay. And we may not know the exact answer to this, but what about the female predominance? Do we know anything about the biology of what explains that? I think it sort of is linked with the fact that any autoimmune disease appears to be female predominant. Mm. And I think, you know, the roles of estrogen in particular in regulating the immune system is still being looked at because we don't really understand it. Very interestingly, with Graves' disease is a disease that often will go into remission during pregnancy, but flare after pregnancy, showing that there's clearly something about the female hormones or the pregnancy hormones that is affecting immune function. All right. So let's talk about a case. Let's hypothetically say we have a 72-year-old woman who comes to us in outpatient clinic. She was recently just hospitalized for a bad case of a UTI. At the time, she had been endorsing some of the nonspecific symptoms you had mentioned, such as fatigue, lethargy, maybe a little bit of weight gain. So the resident ordered a set of TFTs. She comes into you now with a TSH of 8 and a normal free T4. Should we do something at that level yet? So this is still in the hospital or is this now in the follow-up? This is a follow-up about a month later. Great. So certainly if I got these labs in the hospital, I certainly would not do anything. The patient is acutely ill. The labs are close to normal. This can wait. So now we've waited a bit. She's back a month later and the labs are, are actually looking a little bit abnormal. But she falls in this category of subclinical hypothyroidism meaning that her TSH is between the upper limit of normal and 10, and her free T4 is within normal. So the term subclinical hypothyroidism doesn't refer to the clinical presentation at all. It's purely a biochemical diagnosis based on the lab tests. I will say that I will give the caveat here that she is only four weeks after hospitalization. So I would probably want to repeat the labs one more time, mm -hmm. like in a couple of months when she's truly well recovered from her hospital stay before even giving her the label of subclinical hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. But let's say that she had the same labs, you know. Yeah, let's say we send her home, she comes back two months later, and if anything, her TSH is now even crept up a little bit more. It's 11 now. But the T4 is still in the lower range of normal. Puzzling. And this is sort of getting back to the point that I was saying, that the TSH really responds to very small changes in free T4 level. So she might be someone who is happiest with a free T4 of 1.2, and now that it's 1.1 or 1.0, the TSH is actually frankly abnormal. Once the TSH is above 10, I typically do start treatment in those patients. If the TSH was still in that subclinical hypothyroidism, so between upper limit of normal and 10, I might send a TPO antibody because if her antibody is positive, I know that she's more likely to progress to overt hypothyroidism. And I would also talk to her about her symptoms. It turns out that most, like I said, most patients have symptoms of hypothyroidism. Most of us have a bit of weight gain and most of us have a bit of fatigue. So it's very difficult to tease out if their symptoms are from the thyroid or if, if they're just from living in sort of the 21st century. So in that setting, I will talk to the patient and see if they want to try levothyroxine and see if they feel better. Do they want to stay off medication, just kind of uh, see how things play out. And many patients do want to try the levothyroxine. And you can do sort of a three-month therapeutic trial, see if they feel any better. And if they don't, you can then consider stopping the medication. 
I will say though that I have probably never been able to stop the levothyroxine in that setting. Most <laughs> patients feel a little better and whether it's physiologic or whether that is related to sort of a placebo effect, I'm not actually sure. But And I'm sort of okay with people staying on it. It's, it is a very safe medication. It's cheap. Mm-hmm. It does mean that they're going to end up having a TSH once or twice a year for their life. But otherwise, I'm sort of okay with them staying on that medication. But now that her TSH is 11, I, I would recommend that she go on treatment. I wouldn't offer it as an option. I would say you probably should go on treatment. Okay, great. One sort of special population to mention are women of childbearing age. So if they have subclinical hypothyroidism, I do talk to them about their plans for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that's related to some data that suggests that you might have better pregnancy outcomes if you go into the pregnancy with a TSH that is truly within the normal range and maybe even in the lower half of the normal range. So in most women of childbearing age who has some vague plan of maybe having a pregnancy in the future, I would treat their subclinical hypothyroidism and get their TSH down to one or two so so that I'm sure that I'm doing what I can for them to have successful pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And this always comes up on the boards, which is what if someone's already on treatment for hypothyroidism and they're about to get pregnant? It seems like it's not just a matter of titrating to TSH. So there is, was a nice study published by Eric Alexander and his colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that most women who become pregnant need an increase in their levothyroxine dose by about sort of 30% or so. What that means in practice is if someone is taking one tablet per day, whatever strength, levothyroxine, then you tell them to go up to nine tablets per week. That's going from seven tablets to nine tablets per week, and that seems to be a pretty good estimation of the increased requirement in pregnancy. The increased requirement is probably related both to a little bit of sort of the fetal demand for thyroxine, but primarily actually the increase in the binding proteins. So you need more thyroid hormone to sort of saturate the binding proteins to keep your free thyroid hormone levels within normal. And a woman without thyroid disease, the thyroid can just do that. It can just turn out a little bit more T4. But in a woman who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, for example, she cannot make more T4, so she needs the exogenous T4 dose to increase. And then I do follow T4 levels and free T4 and maybe a total T4 and aim for the TSH to be in the normal range and actually probably at the lower end of the normal range. So less than about two and a half is, is my target during pregnancy. Okay, great. And then after pregnancy, I presume they just go back to their pre-pregnancy dose. Correct. And then you follow the TSH to make sure that that's still a good dose for them. There might have been some weight gain during pregnancy that she hasn't quite lost yet. So sometimes the dose needs to go a little bit up. But in general, you can just go straight back to seven tablets per week. Great. And then, you know, I think most residents have this number of 10 as their cutoff for treating hypothyroidism, as we alluded to earlier. We talked about pregnancy. Any other medical conditions where you wouldn't necessarily follow that greater than 10 rule for making the delineation treat, not treat? So other than sort of if the patient has symptoms with slightly high TSH values, I might treat even at lower TSH values. There's some suggestion that patients with dyslipidemia might have benefit from treating subclinical hypothyroidism, but in this day of age, we probably would end up recommending a statin, which is much more effective anyway. Mm-hmm. I think this, a special population is the elderly. And in the elderly, it's almost the opposite, which is that you may have a higher threshold to start treating. Ah, okay. There was a great study recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that in patients with subclinical hypothyroidism who were elderly, 
treating their subclinical hypothyroidism did not improve their symptoms at all, and they used a variety of scores to try to get at that. So it doesn't help them any more than placebo. And we have more concerns about risks in the older population. They are more prone to having established ischemic heart disease. They're more prone to develop atrial arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. And thyroid hormone could worsen both of those conditions, either Mm -hmm. by stimulating the atria or by increasing uh, myocardial oxygen demand. So in the older population, I will be quite comfortable letting the TSH go to 10 and maybe even a little bit above 10 before starting treatment. Okay. And then the last thing we want to just touch upon for hypothyroidism is in the case of central hypothyroidism where you can't really reliably follow a TSH, always going to be low, how do you gauge your treatment effect? Right. So in central hypothyroidism, you have a problem at the level of the hypothalamus or the pituitary. So your TSH secretion is impaired. And so it makes sense. You can't use a TSH to diagnose that and you can't use a TSH to monitor that. So in that setting, you're stuck. You have to use the free T4 level. Mm-hmm. And as I alluded to before, we may not know what free T4 level is good in you. Sometimes we're lucky and we have a free T4 from before the patient developed their pituitary disease. But in most cases, we don't. And in that case, we typically recommend aiming for a free T4 level at the upper half of the normal range. Or in this setting, you may have to go a little bit more by the patient's symptoms. If the patient is having symptoms of over-repletion, if they're losing weight and they have palpitations and heat intolerance, perhaps you might allow the free T4 to go a little bit lower. And vice versa, if they're not feeling quite right, you can push the free T4 a little bit higher. Okay. So our patient, she comes back for follow-up, and this time her lab tests all look really good. Her TSH is in a normal range. She's feeling better, so I think we made the right diagnostic choice. But she's having some concerns because her friends have been talking about thyroid functions and what hormones they're taking. And some of them don't like the synthetic hormones that she's taking. Some have been big proponent of taking these natural thyroid hormones. What are these hormones and should we be recommending these to certain patients? Right. So we've only talked about levothyroxine and that really should be your first line treatment for hypothyroidism. But there are some other options out there. The other options are the desiccated pork thyroids. There's T3, synthetic T3. Just brief inject, levothyroxine is a synthetic T4. Right, that is correct, synthetic T4. And there's also a sort of compounded thyroid hormone um, medications. So the reason that we choose synthetic T4 is because it has a really long half-life of about a week. It is converted in your body's tissues by these deiodinase enzymes to T3. So your tissues are seeing however much T3 they need and want because they can regulate how much deiodinase they are expressing. But proponents of the desiccated pork thyroids say that firstly, when you measure a T3 level, if you were to do that in a patient with hypothyroidism on levothyroxine, the T3 levels will be slightly a bit lower than if they had normal thyroid function. They also say that the thyroid makes T3 and T4, but it makes other things too. Calcitonin will be very familiar to the listeners, but also other sort of less well-defined molecules. So proponents of desiccated pork thyroid say, instead of just giving T4, let's give everything that the thyroid has in it. And so pork thyroids are obtained from basically pigs that are being used for our food. And we take the thyroids out and remove the connective tissue and the fat and uh, dry it out and create tablets basically with the molecules that are contained within it. And they have a fairly set dose of T4 and T3, and we don't really know everything else that those tablets contain. 
The drawback, though, is that if you look at the ratio of T4 to T3 in these tablets, they actually have quite a bit of T3 and quite a bit more T3 than you would see in normal blood. So if you take a tablet of these desiccated pork thyroids, you end up with a few hours of thyrotoxicosis, basically. You have a lot of T3 on board. You might have symptoms from that. And then after a few hours, the T3 with its short half-life will wear off. And for the rest of the day, you have low levels of T3 and you might have symptoms related to inadequate thyroid hormone replacement. The other concern with any compound that has T3 is that T3 does not cross the placenta. So in a patient who is planning to get pregnant or who is pregnant, you need to make sure you have enough T4 on board for the fetus and its requirements. And T3 could potentially interfere with that because you may have to reduce the dose of T4 in order for the patient to tolerate the T3. So the recommendation is really from the American Thyroid Association is to stick with levothyroxine. Mm -hmm. Don't use the desiccated pork thyroids. There are occasional circumstances where we might do a therapeutic trial of synthetic T3. That's a separate tablet. It's called liothyronine. And you can give a very small dose of that so that you're not getting into the problem of over-repletion. Mm -hmm. It has not been well studied, neither in the short term or in the long term. And as a result, it's not something that should be routine. Mm -hmm. But it is something that I have used in the very specific patient who is on a good dose of levothyroxine. Their TSH is normal. They are still complaining about a lot of hypothyroid symptoms. And occasionally, I actually will measure a T3. And if the T3 is frankly low, I might consider giving a small dose of light ironing in that patient. Having said that, we'll also tell the patient that this is not studied. I don't know if it's going to help you or not, and I don't have any good long-term data on this. And I would not do that in a patient who is a childbearing age because of the concern for fetal development that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And let's say a patient comes in and they you've been stuck with the tried-and-true T4, you've been uptitrating your dose, and you measure their TSH, and it's just not budging. What could explain that? That's a surprisingly common scenario, actually. There are a few common things that I think about, and the number one, two, and three really is compliance. And compliance both with, you know, are they actually taking it? And I have one group of patients that come in and really want their thyroid hormone, their dose to go up, and they want to take it because they hope they'll feel better. But then I have another group of patients who are not convinced that they really need it. And so they may not be taking it regularly, or there might be other circumstances that make compliance difficult. So that's one part of compliance. The other part of compliance is whether they're taking it correctly. So thyroid hormone should be taken either first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, at least 30 minutes and ideally 60 minutes before having food or coffee or anything basically other than water. Or it can also be taken at bedtime if bedtime is at least three hours after the last meal of the day. Many patients, though, will take all of their tablets in the morning and sometimes that will include an iron supplement or a calcium supplement or certain other medications that interfere. A standard geriatric cocktail. A standard geriatric cocktail. So that can cause a lot of problems because especially calcium and iron can bind to the thyroxine and inhibit its absorption. So that's the other part of compliance. And then there are patients who just need higher doses. And so you may go higher than you are used to on the doses to see if you can bring that TSH down. There are also rare cases where the TSH assay is not accurate. So we had a, a, a case of a patient who had been working with mice as part of research and actually had developed these human anti-mouse antibodies that interfered with the TSH assay. And so we had a TSH... Weird. 
Very weird. So the TSH level just didn't budge, but the free T4 kept creeping up as we increased the dose, and the patient had symptoms of thyrotoxicosis. So that is sort of weird and wonderful. But much, much more common is to address compliance with, you know, are they taking it at all and are they taking it correctly? A final consideration is, you know, could they have some sort of malabsorption? And specifically, one thing that I think about is celiac disease, as it's another autoimmune disease. Autoimmune diseases generally go together, so if the patient has Hashimoto's, she might well also have celiac disease. So I will do serologic testing for celiac disease to make sure that I'm not missing that, especially if there are other symptoms. But even if it's just a high levothyroxine dose, I will send that test. Excellent. All right. So that should cover it about for the topic of hypothyroidism. And just to briefly touch upon the related hyperthyroidism topic, I think it's a much rarer presentation. And oftentimes when residents encounter it, it's usually a youngish woman who presents to the emergency room and they get admitted because they have tachycardia, palpitations. They've been having the symptoms of hyperthyroidism for a few weeks now. And in the inpatient setting, we know to treat for the tachycardia with a beta blocker. Propranolol gets used a lot, I think, because it has theoretical peripheral T4 to T3 conversion effects. But what I'd like to touch upon is using these antithyroidal medications, methimazole, propiothyrouracil, just because I think internists are not entirely familiar with them, residents not always confident using them. And I feel like it should be something that we have some sort of confidence prescribing for patients. So let's take this patient, you know, example, 30-some-year-old woman, 32, comes in, have tachycardic to 120, heart rate, other vital signs are fine, been having weight loss for the last month, and just not feeling well in the ED. They gave her a first dose of bail blocker, and now she's admitted. Great. So I agree with you that this should be something that residents and primary care physicians are comfortable with initiating treatment for sort of longer term. The patient probably will see an endocrinologist to discuss kind of long-term management. But in sort of the more acute setting, this patient probably has Graves' disease. You know, if we examined her, we would look for like, is her thyroid gland enlarged diffusely? Does she have any eye findings that might kind of clinch the diagnosis of Graves' disease? And if not, you might then send this the TSH receptor antibodies, such as thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin to finally clinch the diagnosis. But regardless, certainly beta blockers are first-line treatment to treat the symptoms. The theoretical advantage of propranolol over other beta blockers is more theoretical and at least outside of the thyroid storm situation. But So so I often use propranolol, but I might as well give metoprolol or atenolol. Mm -hmm. And a beta blocker is fine. And the, the idea there is to try to reduce the sympathetic symptoms of palpitations and also sort of anxiety and sweating and, and so on. But at the same time, I would start an antithyroid drug. And antithyroid drugs will actually directly reduce the level of thyroid hormone, so they will deal with the underlying problem, I guess. But they take some time to actually have their effect. As I said earlier, the T4 half-life is about seven days. So even if I totally took this person's thyroid out surgically, it actually will take a while for the, the levels to drop. And that's why you do want to give that beta blocker upfront to help with the symptoms. The antithyroid drug that we use in pretty much every patient at this point is methimazole. And the reason is that it has uh, le- overall less side effects than propylthiouracil or PTU. The main side effect that we're concerned about with PTU is liver failure. And that is not a common side effect, but it's one that is sufficiently severe that we like to stay away from PTU in general. And this is outside of a couple of very specific scenarios. The scenarios being in 
uh, thyroid storm, we use PTU because it does inhibit the T4 to T3 conversion. And we sometimes will use PTU in early pregnancy. Both methamazole and PTU can cause birth defects, but the incidence is a bit higher with methamazole. So if the patient has to be on thyroid drugs during pregnancy, we sometimes, especially in the first trimester, will choose PTU and then switch to methamazole once the sort of critical period for birth defects has passed. The dose that you choose will depend a bit on the patient's presentation. So how large is her thyroid gland? How thyrotoxic is she? How high are her numbers, her T4 levels? So the range is typically between 5 milligrams or 40 milligrams of methimazole. And where you go will depend on some of those criteria. In, I would say, a fairly typical starting dose might be 20 milligrams. And then you need to monitor for effect and see if you got the dose right. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about hypothyroidism where we monitor the TSH to see if we got the dose right. And in theory, that should be the right test here also because your pituitary should be able to sense what's happening to the thyroid hormone and respond appropriately. But it turns out that the TSH response to treatment of hyperthyroidism lags behind by several weeks. So we often have to use the free T4 levels initially until the TSH starts to rise again. So your TSH being 0.01 can stay there for a month or two. Mm. But your free T4 might have started off at 5, and you'll see it in a week. It's maybe down to 3.5. And then you see it go down to 2, and you know that you're on the right track. And then you basically adjust the methimazole dose to achieve normal TSH once that TSH value is reliable, which can take several months. Depending on the patient's preference, you can choose to continue that methimazole for a year or two, Mm -hmm. see if you can induce remission. And once they've been on it for that long, their TSH is normal, you stop the methimazole and you see what happens. Turns out that only about half of women will actually achieve remission and even some that achieve remission will have recurrence. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, we have to talk more about something more drastic, such as radioactive iodine, ablation of the thyroid, or surgical thyroidectomy. Most of the time, these discussions will happen in the endocrinologist's office, so I would suggest referring most patients with thyrotoxicosis to an endocrinologist so that we can have that discussion. Great. There are times where methimazole or PTU doesn't quite have the desired effect even up front. So there are times where we might recommend one of those other treatments, radioactive iodine or thyroidectomy, even earlier in the disease course. Mm-hmm. Great. And then certainly, you know, by that point, I definitely would want to have an endocrinologist involved. I'm just surprised that after a couple of years of treatment, some of these patients can go into remission because you always just assume that if it is an autoimmune phenomenon, that that will persist for the majority of their life. But that's interesting. Yeah, you can actually measure the TSI level, the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin level, which should be elevated on diagnosis. And you see the levels drop with treatment. And, you know, that's a good question, exactly why that is. If it's because you are sort of shrinking your sort thyroid gland, you. maybe there's less of less antigenic sort of stimulation Mm. or versus direct immune suppressant effect. Those are unknowns, but I definitely think that the TSI is helpful because sometimes uh, when you're thinking about stopping it a year or two out, your TSI level is still very high. I might have more concerns about stopping the medication and follow the patient a little bit closer. Other than the TFTs and maybe the TSI, the only other thing that I follow is CBC. And most of that means getting a CBC at baseline. And the reason for that is because one of the side effects of methimazole is agranulocytosis. Mm. I don't typically send a CBC every three months or whatever. I typically go by symptoms and I tell the patient, if you get a sore throat that's with fevers, give me a call, stop the methimazole. I'll check your wet blood cell count and decide whether this is just a run-of-the-mill 
viral infection or whether this is something more ominous like a granulocytosis. Okay, excellent. All right. So that was a whirlwind tour of the thyroid disorders. You know, we managed to cover a good amount about how do you interpret thyroid function tests, hypothyroidism, and a little bit about hyperthyroidism, which is a much rare condition. Obviously, for the sake of time, we didn't get a chance to cover all of the disorders that can cause thyroid function disturbance, including the whole category of the various thyroiditis entities, etc. But I think for most residents, the conditions that they're going to be dealing with are situations where they have to prescribe levothyroxine for generic hypothyroidism or the occasional patient that do come gets hospitalized or present to the doctor's office with new onset hyperthyroidism and maybe a little bit of thyrotoxicosis. Just to recap some of the main points that we talked about, we start off with thyroid hormone, talking a little bit about T4, T3, reverse T3, what do these different hormones mean? What do they do? Reverse T3 being in the inactive form of thyroid hormone. Talk about the importance of measuring TSH as the master regulator, but as well as the test that integrates better the whole HPT axis. Talked about acute illness and how that can really disturb our testing of the thyroid. Talked about how from the body standpoint, when you're sick, it wants to rev down your metabolism a little bit. And ultimately the net effect that we see is all the tests are down and it's just a situation that mimics quite well a central hypothyroidism. We briefly talked about some of the tests that we can order, including the different antibodies, which may elucidate the etiology of the thyroid disease, particularly uptake scan to help determine, is it a diffuse process or is it more a focal process for the disturbance? We then moved on to hypothyroidism. Some key, I think, learning points are definitely the fact that don't treat subclinical hypothyroidism until you have a compelling reason to do so. Either the TSH is really high or patients have symptoms that you think may be very well correlated. In the elderly patients, maybe even be more judicious with giving levothyroxine. If you're going to give the levothyroxine, make sure they take it appropriately on an empty stomach without other medications and to regularly check their thyroid function to monitor for the effectiveness of your therapy. Pregnant patients, a very tricky population for treating hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. Increase the dose during pregnancy, sometimes maybe irrespective of what the TSH may be, just to make sure that just because we have evidence that suggests there's better outcomes. And then as internists feel empowered to treat hyperthyroidism with methimazole, titrated based on the various lab tests. And after a few months of treatment, especially for some patients with grave disease, you might be able to wean them off of it. Anything else we didn't talk about or missed? I think those are the main points. And one of the big things that I see sometimes done wrong in my patients is using the TSH to try to titrate levothyroxine replacement in patients with central hypothyroidism. So I try to be very clear in my note to say we have to use free T4 in this patient population. So I'll just want to hammer that point home one more time. Yes. That if the patient has pituitary disease and the TSH comes back low, that doesn't mean that they're getting too much levothyroxine. That just means that they're not able to make TSH. Yes. So in that patient, please don't reduce their dose of levothyroxine. Yes, absolutely. That's just another very important point to make in general about taking care of patients is think very carefully about the physiology, what is happening, and interpret everything in light of the physiology and the symptoms. Excellent. So thank you, and I really appreciate your coming and talking to us about the thyroid. Thank you very much. I feel like I'm in the room where the magic happens, so I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're very proud of our new studio. 
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on thyroid disorders in the rotation prep section on endocrinology for more information at resident360.nejm.org. Our production team here at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Sokol Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Cauley, and our guest today, education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamanovic. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. Please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at nejmres360. I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. Please join us again for our next episode.